Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. This is the Explore the Circular Economy podcast, where we discuss how to move away from a linear take-make-waste economy to one that designs out waste and pollution, keeps products and materials in use, and regenerates natural systems. A circular economy. My name is Laura, and I am the host of this podcast. In today's episode, we are joined by two special guests. Walter Stahl, widely known as one of the key people who formulated the concept of the circular economy and the founding father of the performance economy. We are also joined by Amanda Ravenhill, the executive director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute and the co-founder of Project Drawdown, considered the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. Both focus on solutions that regenerate the Earth's ecosystems and combat climate change. We'll be asking them about system change, solutions, and what it will take to transform the economy. I kicked off the conversation by asking Walter the progress that he has seen in the circular economy framework over the last decades. Hello, and uh, thank you for the invitation. This term, circular economy, was coined in 2010 by Dame Ellen and her team when they founded the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and had to choose a theme for its activity. Within 10 years, the term has become a household name and is now used worldwide by dozens of events such as the annual World Circular Economy Forum. Circular economy features as a key priority in the 2020 European Green Deal which reflects the commitment of President von der Leyen's commission to address the climate and environmental crisis. The term circular economy has now fully replaced my term of an economy in loops, which I had used since 1976. And I, I also, from what you are saying, it seems like the circular economy is in a lot of key places at the moment. Um, but what have been, in your opinion, like like the biggest um, milestone that it has over, like that it has achieved um, since the very beginning? Because you always say that circularity has always been there; it's in nature. But you know, it, we, we've seen how how many articles are being written about the circular economy at the moment. How many books, including your book, which we have here today with us, right, Seb? It's the circular economy, a user's guide. We have your book, and, and well, in this book, you've explored many different things. But basically, um, Walter, what I, want, what I would like to, to hear from you is what have been the biggest milestones over, over the last decades? Well, the circular economy has always been with mankind, but it was a circular economy of poverty, of scarcity. People didn't have a choice and they had to do with what they had. So today we have a very different problem in industrialized countries of a circular economy of abundance, in the society of abundance. And therefore, we now, there's no more necessity. So therefore, people have to be motivated to adapt their behavior. And th this is the biggest change that we are still fighting with, convincing people that basically be happy with what you have and enjoy what you have and take care of it. I want to go back to 1976, Walter, 
just for one moment, um, transport ourselves back there. Because you mentioned that you talked about an economy in loops in 1976. What made you come out with that observation? What was the impetus? I guess, were you a researcher at the time? What drove that insight? Well, the <clears throat> definition of an economy in loops was the conclusion of a report which I wrote for the European Commission in 1976 on the potential for substituting manpower for energy. So I was concerned with the rising oil price and the rising unemployment and suggested that we should substitute what we have too much labor for what we have not enough energy. So we substitute trying to find uh, approaches, strategies to substitute manpower for energy. And so I was driven, I was really driven by the job creation issue. And interestingly, that's a challenge that's continued to be very pervasive in the economy. You know, that's a thread that's existed since the 70s and still very prevalent today. Absolutely. And unfortunately, with What's happening at the moment, I think uh, the hidden unemployment is rising again and it will not be solved by increased production, by growth, economic growth. And considering some, some of, the, of these, challenging, well, the, these challenges that you are mentioning, uh, Walter, that are key for, for us as humans, because jobs and our, the work we do, it's, it's, it's a really important part of the economy. But, but not only these, we can also see the legacy of, of, of many of the, of the things that we've been doing for years, the way that we make and use our products, the, the plastics and pollution that we can see in the, in the ocean. But you always say that you are optimistic and you're hopeful. Why why? Why is that? Why do you think the circular economy can, can solve some of these challenges? Well, basically because the circular economy offers the opportunity to tackle simultaneously social issues such as creating skilled jobs, including the employment of silver workers with the knowledge of technologies of the past. The environmental issues by preventing waste and CO2 emissions and reducing the extraction of natural resources and, and enabling the regeneration of natural systems and economic issues by creating a highly resource efficient and profitable economy based on innovations to upgrade the quality of the stocks we have and by maintaining the value and utility of the stock of objects and materials for the longest possible time. And um, so we frame this session as a kind of, what will it take? How are we going to do this? And one of the things that we talked about in the run-up to this conversation, or one of the things that you brought up with me when we asked you this question, was this notion of there being three worlds, um, the biological, technical, and immaterial worlds. What do you mean by those, by by defining there as being three worlds, and why is thinking in that way necessary for the transformation of our economy? Well, because the, these three very different cycles or worlds are need different approaches. The biocycle is the realm of nature, which is circular by design. Waste becomes food for others, 
as long as mankind respects nature's absorption and regeneration capacities. The biocycle functions well if governed by nature, witness the water cycle, CO2 and soil cycle biodiversity, but take note that nature has no preferences or objectives, such as for people. Secondly, the material cycles are the realm of entrepreneurs of craftsmen, craftsmen and industry, but primarily governed by the behavior of the individual owner user of objects who decide how long an object is going to live. As long as people use natural materials, the only problem was nature's saturation absorption capacity. From Stone Age times onwards, economic and scarcity reasons dominated decisions in favor of reuse, repair, remanufacturing. From 1942 onwards, man-made materials of the Anthropocene in chemistry, such as synthetics, pharmaceuticals, metallurgy alloys, and in nuclear physics, replaced natural resources and introduced a producer liability to replace nature's circularity. But this shift to a immaterial world was overlooked for a long time by society. So this brings us to the invisible quality cycles of the immaterial world, which I think today are the main issue. First, the socio-political framework conditions the realm of policymakers, which include legislation, taxation, ethics and value, ownership, stewardship and liability. Cornerstone here is sustainable taxation, taxing non-renewable resources instead of taxing labor would provide a huge incentive for companies to shift the circular economy. Second is the unknown volume of resources embodied in manufactured objects, namely CO2 emissions and the energy and water consumed during mining, manufacturing, transport, production, and distribution up to the point of sale. These embodied resources are preserved by all product life extension activities. Thirdly, the regional crafts and skills, traditions, scientific and cultural knowledge related to biocycles and material cycles. Kintsugi or golden sewing, for example, is an excellent Japanese uh, strategy, craft. Fourth, the performance economy, selling performance and objects as a service through business models of rental, operational leasing, sharing. By retaining the ownership of objects and materials, performance economy internalizes all the risks and liabilities and merges the material with the immaterial cycles. And fifth, the digital technologies, such as Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, big data and data analytics, are considered enabler, enablers of the circular economy. But these five topics are all invisible, immaterial, yet they are basically dominating the material world today. So 
We've got the biological cycle, which has these long natural cycles, the water cycle, the carbon cycle, soil sequestration. We have the um, technical cycle of loops, you know, reuse, remanufacturing. And then, uh, and then you're observing that there's this kind of immaterial world that sits around, especially the technical cycle that's evolving with digital technologies that kind of needs to be addressed from a social policy standpoint, especially in order to take advantage of these opportunities. And is your point there kind of that these three worlds need distinct strategies and approaches? Well, they are ruled by different people. The nature is looking after the biocycles. Industry is looking after the material cycles. But the immaterial world it should be looked after by politicians, policymakers. And they are only slowly waking up to that fact. And I cited uh, Ursula von der Leyen in the beginning. She still talks about basically environmental protection. But the main thing, for me, the main issue in the circular economy is the job creation and the shifting of the responsibility for end-of-life goods from the public, from municipalities to the producer. So it's not up to, in my opinion, municipalities to solve the present waste issue. The policymakers should introduce a full environmental and produce a liability so that goods that have no value to anybody should be returned to the producer and not be uh, eliminated by municipalities using uh, taxation money. And Walter, um, do we have an example at the moment of how this has been done already in practice, just to kind of illustrate a little bit the, the impact of, of, of this? Well, the, uh, as I mentioned, the performance, the actors of the performance economy that are selling utilization, they are internalizing all these costs and liabilities. Think of a hotel, a taxi driver, uh, railways, airlines, Anybody that is selling you not a, a product, a good, but selling you a service or a u useful utilization of, of, a, of a system uh, is already in this, uh, in this performance economy that has to accept the full liability responsibility for what they are doing. Uh, one very quick question, Walter. have to ask you this one. I've read your book, A User's Guide, The Circle Economy, your latest book, it should be said. You've written a few. The bioeconomy is not mentioned in it, or the biological cycle is not mentioned in it. Is there a reason you chose to focus on the technical side of the circle economy in this particular book? Well, because the mankind has its direct influence on the manufactured world. And scientists uh, basically primarily also had 
their main influence was on the, the physical world, the material world, manufactured materials. Of course, now these, this, this distinction is fading because now we have CRISPR, we have uh, biosimilars, we have science and nature are getting mixed up and it's no longer quite clear who has the responsibility or if nature is capable of dealing with these new um, things such as hormones, DNA, RMI, nuclear medicine. There is a, a long list of basically natural elements, but that are modified, changed by man. And so the question arises, is this not in the responsibility of that uh, inventor like like uh, plastics? Do we really want these, for example, the hormones, estrogens, all these things ending up in nature? Because we don't know what nature can do with it or if it's going to change uh, the genetics, the, the, the hormones in food, in fish. So the, the, that's why I basically stuck in my book to the manufactured world because there it's the, the responsibilities and the, the powers of in, intervention are very clear. But I agree, the, the, na the natural world, and especially now the new synthetic natural world, uh, pose additional problems I didn't deal with. And Walter, I, I'm going to move slightly to a different uh, uh, thing at the moment, but I think one of the of the greatest things that we are discussing in this episode is a little bit of your latest thinking around the around the circular economy, and that's and that is great because as I as, as I said, the, the the circular economy concept and framework is still evolving in many ways. It's like we are adding layers to the to the framework and and different things that are occurring because change is happening happening really fast. Uh, nowadays and and one of the things i know you you also talk about in your latest thinking are is this concept of circular sciences um so what what why are you talking about circular sciences connecting this kind of like design more creative world with with science and and what does it mean well innovations in circular sciences will play a key role in a mature circular industrial economy and of course, this is the global, this is a global domain of scientists, academia, of daring. But there is a biology, chemistry, energy nexus, which demands multidisciplinary approaches that differ from the silo structure of many academic institutions. So there is a big question mark. Circular energy, for example, has the objective of zero carbon, zero waste, and includes green hydrogen, ammonium, geothermal, and integrated energy systems, and plus energy districts. So it's a huge array of solutions. Circular chemistry includes carbon capture and utilization, 
carbon chemistry could actually replace the petrochemistry as a sustainable option, but is hardly considered in today's discussions. Then there are poly then PDKs. There is a new type of recyclable polymers with low energy and water consumption. The source materials are 100% recoverable as pure monomers that can be used even in the presence of additives and glass fibers. And then you have Singapore is the only country or region that has developed a method to purify wastewater into drinking quality new water. So chemistry has a huge potential to become circular. The same for circular metallurgy, which does not only include reusing steel beams, re-refining tailings and urban ores, but also technologies to de-alloy metals. For example, there is a, a Bayao has invented, a company has invented technology to improve aluminum recycling by removing iron, which is a detrimental element that can make aluminum brittle. The other technologies have been developed to remove copper in iron and steel. So circular economy in mining and metals is developing fast to cope with the rising demand of critical materials. And a lot of researchers are working on it, but it has a very low visibility. And I don't think politicians, except for research funders, are really aware of what is happening here. What if we applied the same scientific innovation to the way we can remake things that we do to the way we make things, is what I hear you kind of saying. Walter, I know you've called this the transition from the era of R to the era of D before, so from reuse and recycling to depolarizing, for example. Yes, uh, basically closing the loop, but by no longer having the necessity of, of the area of D, uh, because very often it's a, an end of air of these, an end of pipe solution. But the better solution would be, for example, to have plastics that can be uh, very easily depolymerized, uh, metals that can be de-alloyed, that can be reused. But that means that we should, at the beginning of the pipe, in the production, we should deal differently with the materials. We should avoid mixing materials and make it much easier to separate, deconstruct uh, things so we get away from recycling because recycling is basically always downcycling in most cases. Walter Style, thank you so much for making some time to talk with us um, this afternoon. Um, it's always a pleasure and I hope that you at home also enjoyed that. So we heard how from 1976 to 2020, the circular economy is still a response to many of today's macro challenges. We heard about the three worlds, the technical, the biological and immaterial. And we talked a bit about this notion of circular scientists, sciences. How do we start to apply our mind to the sciences in terms of how we 
uh, transition away from the era of R to the era of D. Next up, we're going to hear from Amanda Ravenhill, who's the executive director at the Buckminster Fuller Institute. She was also one of the co-founders of Project Drawdown, a project that listed 100 actions to remedy against climate change with, a, with an approximation, an optimistic approximation of their impact. Um, we talked to, to Amanda about a number of things in this conversation. We caught up with her a little while ago, um, but you'll hear a little bit about us talking about the kinds of thinking shifts that need to be happening, as well as some of the specific actions and opportunities that she's uh, identified. To start off with, we actually wanted to ask her a bit about who Buckminster Fuller was as a person and her work at the Institute. So take a listen to our conversation with Amanda. What, um, just for anyone who's not super familiar with the Buckminster Fuller story, what uh, era was he working in? He's, I mean, he's, 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 it's worth noting he was a thinker ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was born in 1895. Um, he always liked to talk about how his life expectancy when he was born was 35. And he died in 1983. And he was able to see so much. He saw kind of the, you know, advances of technology happen right before his eyes. When he was in the Navy, he saw uh, some of the first boat-to-air transmission of um, a radio signal. And he just saw, wow, you know, technology is going to kind of give us all the tools that we need to take care of everyone. And he saw this, you know possibility, it's not definite, but this possibility of switching from an extractive economy based on the production of weaponry to really a circular economy based on the production of what he called livingry. So moving from weaponry to livingry, he talked about how we, we would build all the right tools, but for the wrong reasons first, and that we're far more capable than we know. The technology that we have that's been you know, driven by competition and war uh, is the same technology that we need to take care of everyone. The right tools for the wrong reasons. And I think very synergistic with some of the things. I think it's obvious from your story and the way you told Buckminster Fuller's story, why in some ways you've ended up gravitating towards that organization. Um, it's also synergistic with a lot of things we talk about in this show where really the solutions are available. And often the piece that we're working on or talking about in programs like this is the types of thinking that we need. It's almost the thinking shift that's the hardest piece of the puzzle because this mm -hmm. ultimately comes down to people one of the things that's really common across your work, Amanda, is talking about systemic thinking or how we think systemically. And you, you, you fronted it a lot very clearly in your, in your introduction of your own story. How, how do you go about that? How do we get to a point where people look at challenges like climate change in a different way, in a way that drives towards solutions rather than only talking about the problem? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Buckminster Fuller always said, start with the universe. So it's so important that we flex our muscles to be able to see really the whole context um, of any scenario instead of just kind of overly reducing it just to its parts because then you'll miss things. Um, and so many kind of good intentions have gone awry because we've just looked kind of more bluntly at saying, you know, how can we solve this one thing? And then we end up having kind of this like squeeze out, you know, this knock on effects or downstream effects of what we do that sometimes are like a higher order of magnitude. So we're actually creating more harm than if we hadn't intervened in the first place. Um, so start with the universe, kind of always try to look at the whole context. And one of the tricks for this is to always aspire to solve more than one problem at once. So if you're just trying to, you know, 
feed people, but you're not looking at the health of soil or the health of communities or the nutrient density of that food uh, or the water cycles around it, you know, if you're just looking at, okay, caloric intake, uh, you might end up creating, you know, a really um, bad malnutrition cycle and might go from starvation to obesity, you know, Whereas if you look at the whole system and you say, okay, how can we feed people while also taking care of the water cycle and the soil and uh, looking at climate, then you're going to kind of anticipate what the whole system is um, and be able to create cascading benefits, these kind of positive cycles of, of value and health, which is really how nature works, kind of back to what Buckminster Fuller was always aspiring to do is looking at nature as, as design inspiration. Um, you know, nature is always trying to kind of create these like healthy, virtuous cycles of life that begets more life, that begets more life. And um, I guess uh, that also links to another system of thinking that we're very inspired by here at the foundation of Joel DeRosne, who talks about the macroscope, the ability to kind of zoom out and look at the whole system and then also to zoom in and look at what are you trying to do in terms of actions. And that feels like what you attempted to do in some ways with the project drawdown work um, do you want to give us just uh, like kind of a 30 second intro in terms of what Project Drawdown exactly was and and why, why you were part of setting it up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in 2013, Paul Hawken and I started Project Drawdown really out of a, a frustration of not being able to see the future that we wanted. And I had been working in climate for over 10 years at that time, and no one had told me that it could actually be reversed, that we could see global cooling in my lifetime. Like we had 350.org, I worked with them. We had that goal of 350 parts per million. Um, But the narrative really wasn't out there. Like, what does it look like to solve this? Um, And also the narrative around climate was climate and energy. It's kind of like almost as if it was one word. And I knew there was much more to that, uh, that food and land and materials and girls' education and so much more family planning go along into uh, what we need to do to solve climate change. So Uh, Paul and I put together this amazing coalition of researchers from around the world, and we created uh, what's now a New York Times bestselling book called Drawdown. It's 100 different solutions to climate change uh, mapped, measured, and modeled over the next 30 years to see both the climactic and the financial impact. And it's a $74 trillion business opportunity to solve climate change while also just creating all of these cascading benefits. And um, and I guess and that and that is that something that's updated now regularly, or is mm-hmm. it that's that's now a program of activity that they sort of re readdress it, remodel it regularly? Yeah, yeah. The Drawdown 2020 review is out this year, uh, so that we have all new models, and uh, we'll also be releasing kind of an interactive database in the next year, uh, so people can go in and kind of see. Obviously, it's it's a whole uh, set of models, you know, based on a lot of assumptions. But if you can go in and kind of tweak them, then you can see, you know, the the latest kind of optimistically plausible scenario we like to say is that global cooling will happen in 2053. Um, the global temperatures will peak at about 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels and then decline in 2053. Um, And so you can go in and kind of see what that is all comprised of, but 12 of the top 20 solutions are land and food based. And so that's kind of a a big thing that's happening now. There's a new film out called Kiss the Ground that tells that story really well. And kind of we're waking up to regenerative agriculture and oceans too, um, kind of land and ocean use being kind of the, the saviors of the story of, of climate change. This idea of trying to do more good and not just less bad. 
And exactly. I'm on the way. Yeah. yeah. And to love carbon. I think that's a big switch that's happening. It's not about demonizing carbon. It's about, you know, realizing that it's, it's what makes life. And it's just kind of Buckminster Fuller like to say that pollution is just resourcing resources that we aren't harvesting correctly. Um, and so, you know, we have this excess trillion tons of CO2 in the atmosphere and we can bring it back down. I like to say that carbon is the element that holds hands and collaborates uh, you know, at a kind of molecular level, that's what happens with carbon. And I think that's what we all need to do with it and with each other at this time. So Amanda, I'm really happy to hear that you saw more than that energy climate uh, connection that you that you saw that there is much more than that to do because um, actually one one of our recent papers uh, we looked at, at how a circular economy scenario what what kind of impact could that have on climate change and and we found out that all the renewable energies are super important uh, relying only on switching to renewable energies and improving energy efficiency could only help us tackle 55% of the of all our global global greenhouse gas emissions, while the other 45% actually comes from the way we make and use goods. And mm -hmm. in fact, you also mentioned regenerative agriculture, and we looked at how, yeah, circular economy scenarios look for food, and we found that actually regenerative agriculture was one of the three key main strategies that could help us reduce by 49% the total global uh, greenhouse gas emissions for, of the food system. Um, so just for our audience who might not be familiar with this uh, specific topic, could you give us a, yeah, like a 30-second intro to what regenerative, regenerative agriculture is? Yeah, of course. Regenerative agriculture mimics how life has kind of managed soil and biomass for billions of years. Uh, and so a, a healthy soil, a teaspoon of healthy soil has more microorganisms in it than there are people on earth. Soil that's healthy is so alive. There's so much happening. And regenerative agriculture really manages for healthy soils. And then in doing so, it balances the carbon cycle, balances the water cycle, increases resilience to extreme weather events. You know, like I said, the temperatures likely won't go down for another couple decades. So I like to call this the awkward era, the next couple decades where the bad news is going to get worse while the good news also gets better. But we need to increase our resiliency to these extreme weathers. Obviously, all the fires happening around the world right now are showing us that. But if we can bring more moisture to our agriculture um, and land use practices, then that fire doesn't have as much to um, to burn up. And then we're also more resilient against droughts because there's more water in the system and floods because the floods don't kind of erode everything. So I like to think it's like a lot of people are rightfully so very scared right now and, and kind of preparing for the worst case scenario. But in doing that, they're kind of like coming back to land and realizing they need to grow food for themselves and realize they need to be kind of in right relationship like this. But if you look at the best case scenario, it's actually some of the same practices. And I find there's kind of like a calming nature of knowing that like growing our own food, kind of bringing more water cycle um, health to our local areas, you know, can help us both kind of brace for the impacts that are coming in this awkward era, but also build into the future that we all want to live in. And it's worth saying that regenerative agriculture, or at least um, a is a collection of practices, and some of those practices feature on your project drawdown list. 
Yes, many of them. Yeah, if you add them all up, it's the number one solution to climate change, but we have them all kind of separated out. Just agroforestry alone, which is bringing in trees into your agriculture system, either through silvopasture, kind of integrating them with with pastured animals or doing um, multi-strata agroforestry where you have like nut crops and fruit crops and, you know, many things kind of growing in, um, in kind of this like canopy layer. Um, those just agroforestry alone would be the number one solution to draw down. So there's a lot of ways to kind of slice the pie. Um, but yeah, like I said, 12 of the top 20 solutions are food and land. And Amanda, you often talk about this concept of a generous economy and regenerosity. Um, and mm -hmm. I know you've mentioned that a circular economy is a key part of that, that generous economy that you see in the future. Um, could, you, could you tell us a bit more about how this looks like and what different trends uh, you see part of this uh, future economy? Yeah, of course. Well, Buckminster Fuller did this really great research study in the 60s. He declared the design science decade, uh, said that, you know, it would take 10 years if we really dedicated ourselves uh, for humanity to kind of retool the earth to work for 100% of life. And the Buckminster Fuller Institute, we've just rekindled the second design science decade. He was often 50 years ahead of his time. Uh, but in the research that he did, he found that we actually do have the technological capability to take care of everyone and kind of shifting from that zero sum game of I can only profit at someone else's expense to a positive sum game of we can both you know, benefit and then create more benefit that makes it easier for others to benefit. It's a really big paradigm shift. And he said it would take about 50 years. He said this in 1970 uh, for all of our institutions to kind of crumble based on that scarcity mindset and move over into more of a generous mindset. And so here we are, the generous economy is, you know, alive and um, beginning to thrive. It's not quite there yet, but we see kind of tags of, of what's happening, milestones where we're shifting from, you know, kind of ownership to access, what's called the sharing economy, moving from kind of product-based uh, economy to a service, more service-oriented economy. Some people call it the caring economy. Um, kind of overall just moving from away from that you or me understanding of the world to a you and me understanding of the world. And I think that's where kind of generosity comes up and we have more access to information with open source, more access to kind of ideas of moving from shareholders to stakeholders. There's a lot of different components um, that kind of exemplify, you know, moving from an extractive kind of, you know, exchange-based economy to one that's more around gifting um, and celebration, moving from essentially from competition to cooperation and still seeing that it can create that, that economic churn that can keep us all alive and thriving. Um, one way to look at it too is just kind of moving from a more mechanistic way of understanding the world that's can tend to be overly reductionist and just looking at the components. Whereas if we look at a living systems way of understanding, we really see the kind of integrated whole and all of the different um, flows where waste can equal food and, you know, someone's, um, you know, success equals everyone's success. And, you know, Buckminster Fuller talked a lot about the shift from thinking of evolution as survival of the fittest to really evolution as a survival of the fitness within your ecosystem. So how much you give back and how much well you fit within this larger web is actually what will determine survival and evolution. And humans have 
been co-evolving with nature for millennium. We have been these kind of apex healers and apex gardeners. Uh, it's really only in the last 500 years or so that our main identity is kind of one of more like apex predator and trying to control nature uh, so much. So kind of coming back into realization that humans have been co-evolving with nature and that we really are nature. Um, the story of separation is kind of losing its its stronghold over society and, and we're really becoming to acknowledge just how interdependent everything is. So we've heard from Walter about his latest thinking on the circular economy framework and how we could include three worlds, the biological, the technical and the immaterial. We've also heard from Amanda on the ways in which a move towards a generous economy that is built on the concepts of a serene and regenerative economy can lead to a prosperous future. That is all for this episode of the Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, share and comment wherever you are listening to this podcast and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.